0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Sermon Extra. Uh, This uh, week we are looking at the end of 1 Kings chapter 3. This is uh, coming after the sermon on Solomon in wisdom judging between two prostitutes, one who had um, killed her own child in a tragic event and then stole the child of her roommate. And Solomon is, is called the judge between them, and he asked for a sword to be brought to divide the child, and in this act, the true mother's motherly heart is revealed, and the false mother's um, envious and um, wicked heart is revealed, and so justice is done, and it reveals Solomon's wisdom. There are two things I want to look at today coming from this. First, I want to look at more just about envy. And look at the topic of envy. It's one of the seven deadly sins in Christian history, and one that I think is often misunderstood or one that we don't pay attention to enough. I know I didn't. I often considered it to be akin to jealousy. Uh, But uh, Rebecca Koenigdeich de Young's book, Glittering Vices, uh, really opened my eyes to understand envy in a deeper and more holistic way. And then secondly, I want us to look at Uh, just take an ethical consideration of Solomon's command to divide the child. Um, It it strikes me at first, I don't know if it strikes you, as something that seems actually ethically dubious, that he would, in a sense, deceive the women to make them think he's going to do this terrible thing in a sort of aha or gotcha moment. So I want to look at just applying some biblical ethical principles and examples um, to really analyze how we should feel about that act. Of Solomon's. So uh, first of all, let's look at the topic of envy. And I'm going to be borrowing a lot from Rebecca Koning Dyke de Young here. I want to just um, expound on some of these quotes that I found particularly helpful from her book. Okay, here's the first one we're going to look at. This is what she writes. The bottom line for the envious is how they stack up against others because they measure their self-worth comparatively the envious sorrow over another's good because it excels their own and because the comparison reveals not only their lack of that particular good but also their consequent lack of self-worth all of us need to be loved and found worthy but the envier makes attaining this love and worth a comparative game okay so that's what she's saying she's saying envy is really a comparative Trait. It's it's measuring yourself up against others and using where you fall in the rank ordering of your peers as a measure of your self worth. So your worth is found in relation to other people. Um, In another place, she says this The envious wants to be superior, for their self esteem depends on outranking others in the relevant field of comparison. Okay, so this is what she's saying. Um, It's not just you want to be good at soccer. You want to be the best on the team. It doesn't matter if you're actually worse than average, as long as you're the best in the relevant field of comparison. You would rather be the best player on a worse team than a really good player on a better team, but who is maybe the worst on that team. She continues, Their own identity hangs on excelling others. But only those others who threaten that identity, that is, those close enough to be compared as rivals, right? So this is saying the, um, the stay-at-home mother is not comparing herself to the businessman. He doesn't threaten her. It's another stay-at-home mom who maybe seems like she's better with her children or more organized. That makes the person feel um, this comparative envy, Whereas um, the businessman is going to be comparing himself to other businessmen, and ones that are rising faster than him might make him feel lesser in comparison. And this really got me thinking of, Joss, in what a shocking number of ways we really do calculate how good we feel about ourselves in actual numbers. Like we literally apply numbers to rank ourselves, and it affects our self-esteem. Like, just consider some of these areas. Um, For many students in school, the marks you get are an effective measure of your self-worth. I remember groups of students in high school, um, and I guess I'll admit I was often among them, but who would sit around at lunch and just compare marks. What did you get on this test? What did you get on this assignment? With really just the goal of inflating the ego by hoping to have been the best of the relevant group, of the friend group. Um, it, even in college, the marks you get, where you rank on the curve in the class, it can significantly affect how good you feel about yourself. And moving on, here's often um, one's salary. Even if it's not displayed to others, just knowing the number in your head, where you rank on the averages of society, above, below the median, it affects your outlook over yourself, and you feel often like your personal worth and con- contribution to society is based on the number of your salary. Or maybe even within business, um, people that would be comparing their sales numbers, how high their sales are that uh, that month, how much is their commission, um, and they want to be the best. Um, I remember listening to a podcast a while back about uh, car sales, and it was just fascinating. And, you know, there was one guy that doubled everyone's sales every month and he just said that he was so hungry for it he hated to lose he hated to not be the best Um, and if we look at maybe more something for younger people in a social media age um, the amount of um, stress and envy and comparison that comes when looking at say who has uh, the most friends or the most followers or the most subscribers Um, and really it's often even on Instagram compared like a ratio. Oh, how many followers do you have to how many people you're following? That shows your clout. It shows your status in a significant way. Not to mention the amount of um, likes or loves that you get on photos or videos or TikToks that you share. And there is a significant, um, there can be a significant envy component in wanting to get more than your friends and feeling terrible when you get less than your friends. Um, I, I remember, um, even for myself, when I used to be on Instagram, um, I've since left that platform because it was not good for envy in my heart. Um, but I remember just this pressure being like, I want to get a lot of likes. I want to get more likes than my sister. Um, and I really liked sharing hiking photos. And then I quickly found that when, my friends were getting more likes on their hiking photos than mine, Um, I would feel envious, or when they were going on hikes I wasn't going on, I would really not feel happy for them, and I realized, wow, like, I am not happy for my friend, because I'm caught up in this comparison game of who's the best hiker, who gets the most likes and the best photos. Um, It's really a fool's errand. Um, we, We use these numbers to actually measure ourselves, And maybe it's less tangible things like maybe you're very aware in your mind of how many compliments on your parenting you get or how many compliments on your looks you get. And parents, all these things you can also do in your children. A lot of parents, um, their their function of self-worth, moms especially, is found in their children's marks. How well their children are doing on the soccer team or in sports, in school, in life, um, in business when they're older. And holding up their numbers is a way to bolster your own self-worth. And this is a problem that I think we all get tied into at different points. Where we feel good or bad about ourselves based on where we fit in the social rankings of the worlds in which we live. And the problem is that with social media now, those worlds have enlarged Towards to to, to now, no longer are you just comparing yourself to the couple dozen people that are in your life, but the hundreds and thousands of people across the country. We get to see the best of the best in every circumstance. And this is really working to lower um, people's self-conception in a significant way. Um, And maybe all this talk of um, self-esteem um, maybe uh, get, grind your gears the wrong way, and there there is a, a psychologized way to view self esteem as the end all be all that is unhelpful and inappropriate. But really, what what we're talking about with this is is a contentment. Is it biblical contentment? Contentment is very similar to self esteem in that it is a a contentment with who God has made you to be. An acceptance and actually a delighting in who God has created you to be, in the giftings he's given you, in the life circumstances he's allowed you to walk through, and really just a recognition that what God does is good and his ways in your life have been good and you can be at peace with who you are. And that that is really a healthy self-esteem, is one that recognizes God's goodness and his acceptance. And that really is the cure for envy, is really seeing ourselves in God's eyes and not comparing ourselves in the world. And this is this is what Rebecca Koning Dyke D. Young talks about. Right, let's look quickly at what she talks about as the cure for envy: this competitive, comparative spirit. She says. The cure for envy requires getting out of the comparative game of engineering self-worth altogether. Okay, she says we just have to stop using comparison to create our sense of self-worth. She says to overcome envy, we need to work from a new unconditionally loved vision of who we are. A self secure in its unconditional worth or worth based on God's love Is a self free to affirm others' gifts without feeling threatened or thereby made inferior? Okay, what she's saying is that the key to overcoming envy is to see that in God's sight, we are inestimably valuable as people created in the image of God, but doubly valuable in that he paid the highest price, the blood of Christ, in order to have his beloved bride his beloved children adopted into his family. And when you see that you already have all your identity, all your worth wrapped up in God's delight in you, we don't need to try to create a sense of self-worth by proving to the world that we're worthy, because it's already been proven that we were valuable to God. And so we don't need to try to get our value from the world. And if we are rooted in a sense of Um, complacency um, in in a good way, good complacency and contentment in who we are in Christ, then we are not threatened, she says, by people that excel us in the giftings. We can delight that God's made people smarter than us and better looking than us and more talented than us. And we can also, we don't need to um, look at those who are lesser than us in various areas to feel good. We can choose to seek to help others and build them up and bring ourselves low to serve because our conception of our self and our soul is found in God. And so Rebecca Koenigdijk de Jong finishes just saying that overcoming envy requires acknowledging a deeply human need for unconditional love and acknowledging the source of this love. This is what all of us need. We all try to fill this need for love. Children try to earn their parents' love with good grades. Uh, Parents try to earn their parents' love by having children and giving grandchildren and being successful, carrying on the family name, whatever it is. We all want to be loved, and any worldly source of love is fickle and changing. We need God's unchanging, unconditional love. We need to go to the source, the love of Christ that passes knowledge. That love of Christ, that is, it's so high, deep, wide, that we can't get to the end of it. And if we were constantly looking every day for the Lord's loving approval, we would find so much more of it than when we spend the day looking for the approval of man. As Paul says in Galatians 1.6, If I were still trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ Jesus. Or sorry, I think Galatians 1.10. 6 or 10, you can take a look. Anyways, we all have this envy in our heart and we really need to be aware in ourselves of where are we comparing ourselves. Where do we feel um, a bit of disgust that someone has succeeded when we didn't, or someone got married when we're not married yet, or someone's had kids before, we've had kids, or someone got a better mark than me on the test, or someone got a raise and I didn't. All these things. Learn to put them aside and just delight ourselves in the Lord. Envy. Okay, secondly, I want to look at uh, Solomon's actions in this court case, where he says in verse 25, and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. Okay, and the question I asked at the beginning is, is this ethical? He's giving a command that he has no intention of um, bringing to pass. He's not going to cut the child in half. That would be a terrible sin. And so why would he almost fake that he's going to do a terrible act in face of an allegedly terrible act and use this to induce sort of a revealing of the heart. Okay, so what, what, this, what we're actually looking at here is whether it's ethical to use methods of deception for inducing a conf- confession. Uh, I did a little bit of research on this, um, and in even American law, it's actually allowed to have certain levels of deception in interrogations when a suspected criminal um, is seeking to be brought to justice. And there's certain things that are allowed and certain things that are not allowed. And there's been court cases about this. Um, and so a couple things would be that it's been considered allowable for interrogators to tell a suspect something like, oh, well, we actually have... Um, DNA evidence that was found at the site. And then the person might be thinking, oh, well, I know I did it. They have DNA evidence. That's not going to lie. So, okay, I'll admit it. Yes, I did it. And then they confess, and the case can move forward. They're they're allowed to deceive in that sort of way. They're not allowed to deceive in things like um, telling a uh, suspect... um, lying about what rights they have, right? Uh, You have the right to remain silent, the right to a lawyer. They aren't allowed to lie and say, for instance, you don't have the right to a lawyer, that sort of thing. So even in our culture, we acknowledge that there are certain types of deception in very extreme cases that are allowable. And I know this isn't a biblical argument, but I just want us to see that we sort of intuitively understand this principle. And this is an issue where... There are life and death circumstances, um, extreme circumstances that are of significant consequence, right? Crime, murder, these sorts of things. And it's deception in a serious scenario such that we could think of it as a battle. Uh, There are scenarios of crime and criminality that can almost be thought of as a warlike or battle-like scenario. And God does explicitly seem to approve in scripture deception in battle. A prime text here is Joshua 8 where the Israelites are going to fight against Ai. And the the Lord reveals a plan to Joshua that is going to use deception. The army is going to feign losing the battle and retreating in order to make the enemy think that they are running away. And then as they run away and the enemy pursues them, an ambush pops up and goes and burns the city. Then the fleeing people turn around. It's a move very intended to deceive the opponents, but it's in a battle. It's in a serious area. And that is where I think this act of Solomon falls. Um, This is a matter of a child being kidnapped, and getting to the truth, fighting this lie of a false mother stealing a child, I think elicits a need for some sort of deceptive extreme, as if Solomon was engaged in battle against this criminal. It's a good versus evil scenario, and I think to deceive her is not immoral in this sense, but actually to accomplish um, the the uh, to accomplish justice. In this scenario. So, therefore, I, I do think that this act of Solomon is justified. And also note that this actually isn't technically a lie. Uh, Solomon here gives a command. He says, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. An imperative can't be true or false. Y- you can't say, divide the living child in two. Is that true or false? Well, it's true that he said it. Um, It's not making a statement about reality. And just as truly as Solomon could say, divide the child, he could say, do not divide the child. Um, That actually isn't a lying scenario. Uh, But just to further complicate things, and maybe leaving Solomon aside for a sec, uh, there is often distinction in moral theology between deception and lying. So theologians like Wayne Grudem, for instance, would allow that as in the cases and examples I gave, there might be a time to deceive someone. Um, he, when Grudem argues that there's nothing at all wrong with leaving the lights on in the house when you're out in order to make criminal think a criminal think that you're home when you're not, but that speaking words that you know are false as if they were true, he puts that in a different category than deception. He he thinks that lying is a particular. Um, word-based sin that is um, a different different categorically than deception and whether lying is ever permissible has been a debate a debatable topic in the history of Reformed theology um, throughout most of church history it was considered that lying was always wrong no matter what uh, this was the position of augustine uh, similar to that of Wayne Grudem and so people would then bring up, seemingly scriptural counterexamples, such that the Hebrew midwives, um, at the beginning of Exodus, they save the Hebrew children from being thrown into the river by lying to the king and saying that the Hebrew women just were so strong that they gave birth before the midwives could get there. Therefore, the midwives couldn't kill the children. And God uh, praises the midwives. And so it looks like God is approving what they did. But people would argue that, well, God's approving their their intention and what it accomplished, but not the actual means. Uh, People argue that the lie itself is not praised by God. Another example is given of Rahab, who told the guards that the spies had left and gone a certain direction when the spies were clearly in her house. And Rahab is praised for this act in scripture. But again, it's mentioned that, no, it was her intention and the outcome that was praised and not the lie itself. So I'll let you weigh whether you buy those um, arguments or not. And it is more complex than that. But my, my main point is to bring is just to show that um, this is something that in the history of Reformed theology, you could go either way on. Um, both are acceptable per- positions. And for those that, that do accept that there is a time where it is right to lie, um, it is usually only in extreme cases... Such as this case with Solomon, and probably not something most of us would ever come across in our life. And there's further complicating factor to say what is lying versus what is um, joking or kidding or mutually acknowledged um, exchanges, whether in games or about uh, Christmas presents, what what have you. Um, it's, it's a complicated topic when you actually start getting into into the semantics and the definitions, but. Um, my main point just being, I think Solomon is not wrong in this case in what he did. And if you want to go um, study up this issue, um, read a systematic theology or a moral theology, a book of ethics that talks particularly about the ninth commandment. Um, or you could try to find this stuff on Augustine. Uh, per, perhaps I'll link it. We'll see. No guarantees. But anyways, uh, that's what I want to say on that. I hope you guys all have a great day, and um, just as we're into these coronavirus restrictions, um, take time to just pray, be with the Lord, meditate, and enjoy your families. Take care.